guitarist, composer, teacher, Dan Balmer is in the Artichoke Cafe this time around. He always has a lot to say, and I've been looking forward to sitting down with him again. Coming up soon on Coffee Shop Conversations, the new executive director of 45th Parallel Universe, Lisa Lipton, and a visit with Lisa Marsicek, also known as Ms. Kitty. Dan Balmer has a new album called When the Night. That name, what does it mean? I mean to find out. Here's what happened. As soon as Dan got here, we started talking about, well, uh, everything. That's what happens with Dan. I stopped the conversation and turned on the recorder, and the rest is history. sitting here talking yes and i just we, we got to a point where we we're talking about a, a an episode uh, for a few weeks from a few weeks ago which i hope you heard uh on on, uh, on ben darwish and so <laughs> dan said we should be recording this yes well what i'm about to say should be recorded okay oh for posterity well i mean so you were saying we were talking about how ben was great jazz pianist kind of the next guy coming up yeah and it was just an interesting thing about being a musician since we're just going to go all over yeah it's like you know how you figure out how to make a living as a musician yeah and you know for so I, an interesting case in point is chris Bodie, mm -hmm. who's from portland well, he's from Albany and Corvallis, mm -hmm. and is probably the number one jazz musician in the world. Yeah, I mean, he, however you want to say that, he's a very, very, very good trumpet player. But I mean, he can charge more money and play <laughs> bigger rooms yeah. than any other jazz musician except Diana Krall. Uh -huh. That's the only person his level. Uh huh. And whoever thought a trumpet player really would be that famous, <laughs> you know? And who thought Sting would use a trumpet player? Sure. And and Chris himself, well, I often thought about it because Chris, when he was, you know, 21 or 22, told me he wanted to be bigger than Kenny G, <laughs> which was a crazy thought at the time. You're a trumpet player. Yeah. You're a jazz musician. You know, Kenny G was never really a real jazz musician. No. What he, what he is is fine. But and Chris really could play. And uh, he said, no, I want to be that famous. And, and somewhere along the line, Chris, you know, didn't make any of the mistakes that most of us make. He uh -huh. really visioned his career. Yeah. And. And, uh, you know, he got advice from the right people. He didn't make any record. Um, you know, he never made a record. And his first record was the first record when Sony Music decided to get into kind of pop jazz, smooth jazz. In uh -huh. other words, he was the number one artist at what was going to be the most well-financed label. Yeah. He didn't have a bunch of little records he'd made in Europe. Uh -huh. you, know, that, you know, he didn't have any missteps or any little artistic statements. He waited and waited and waited. He could have been on Blue Note. He could have done anything. He <laughs> waited and waited yeah. till the very best moment. Most of the rest of us, we make whatever record and we start putting them out. I mean, even yeah. Esperanza, uh -huh. who's a great star and great, great artist, you know, she has a record she made in Spain before she got famous uh -huh. you know kind of a small jazz record yeah so ben darwish you know clearly he was a guy who was always trying to figure out you know how can i get people you know how can i be successful which which it doesn't doesn't mean i'm sure to him or any of us how can i make the most bucks yeah but it's you know how can i get my music in front of people how can i you know how can i get people to hear me how can i get yeah. people how can i have work you know how can i get right. in front of an audience and so right. he went to la and and clearly has learned yeah. you know how it works and a yeah. lot of us you know don't learn how it works and, right. uh, you know, you play a gig and you think, oh, I want to be a leader on a gig and I want to be a leader on a gig at 1905 and then I'll have made it, yeah. you know, and <laughs> that's like really, you know, Chris Bode was talking to and looking at Sting 
yeah. you know, to get his advice. Yeah. And Ben Darwish has now been in with very powerful and probably knowledgeable people, yeah. and he's seen that. You know, for me in my career, I was following Tom Grant, who I had been mm-hmm. in Tom's band, and uh, you know, Tom had a small record deal. Mm-hmm. And then got a big record deal, and mm-hmm. that's how you used to do it. Yeah, and I tried to do that, but I didn't. You know, I, I, my records were not. You know, my first record did very well nationally, and as kind of a pop jazz record, and then my next record was more of a jazz record. Yeah, and that really threw off my career because I went from having tons of radio all over the country to a record that they weren't going to play. Yeah, and that was my own sort of hubris. And, you know, in the same time, you know, Tom was able to, you know, actually get to a big record deal. Mm-hmm. But even, you know, I don't think that big record company really understood him and didn't really know how to ma- manage his career. Um, you sort of follow the people that you that you see. Chris Bodie went and found Sting and followed him and got advice from like the number one know how to promote yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, me, I was following Tom, who was not, you know, he was not. You know, he got a lot further than I did, but he was, you know, he was not a slick, clever guy who figures that stuff out. You know, I thought you did it by making a record and getting a bigger record deal. And but then other people all around here, like, you know, other people were producing their own records Mm -hmm. and just selling them off the stand Mm -hmm. and ending up making more money and having more control (laughs) over their product. Yeah. So. It was, careers go a lot of different directions, and yeah. and, uh, and I, for mine, I feel like when I think about my career, I think you know I didn't, I was the opposite of Chris Bodie. I certainly didn't have a clever, clear, calculated mm-hmm. sense of how to work it. You know, mm-hmm. I sort of mm-hmm. bumbled my way around. And how about now? Well, now, I mean, I feel thanks for thanks for asking. I feel, you know, I feel very very good. I, I feel, you know, number one, like a survivor. I feel like. Uh, a young, young gu- guitarist, Chance, Chance Hayden said, man, it's great you made a record, you know, no disrespect, but most of your guys your age gave up a long time ago. Right. And, and that's, right. he's saying, you know, not, you're not, not dissing anybody, but yeah. you know, making a record is, is a, a thankless task. Um, it's going to be a money loser for sure. Even with my GoFundMe, um, there's hardly any radio to get played. Right. You know, there's hardly any jazz radio. There's a million records out there. There's, you know, people are not that interested a lot of times in original jazz. You know, I'm not young, <laughs> not young and sexy. I'm not a person of interest at all. Uh, and yet I went to New York and hired two of the very best musicians in the world and maybe the very best musicians in the world for my music, literally, uh-huh. Gary Versace and, and Rudy Royston. You know the joke about Versace? Um, well, no. Um, what movie is it? Oh, there's a, there's a new movie out, uh, and the guy, one of the characters, mispronounces Versace. Oh, oh, as Versace. As Versace. Oh, that's hilarious. And so, why doesn't Gary pronounce it Versace? That's a really good question. Because Paul Mazio pronounces it Mazio and not Mazio. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I, it's always. I think. I. You know, it's funny because it's. It's sort of. You know. I mean. Anyway, not to get into it. It's a little but, you know, off the track. But, you know, but it's no. But you know, you're right. But it's like when people say, you know, he speaks everything normal, and then, yeah, I don't know. I think. I think they felt. I know. I think he always probably felt that was too, you know, too highfalutin <laughs> or something. But he understands my music. We made a great record, uh, 14 years ago with Matt Wilson on drums, uh-huh. another New Yorker, and uh, so. 
Um, I'm excited about the new record. I feel like that's a great move in my career. And then I've got lots of work and I've been touring with Pink Martini some. And so I've been doing stuff that, you know, that that's been new and entertaining. So what was the difference between the first time you recorded with, 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 with Gary and, and this time? Well, it's, that's, that's, yeah, that's a great question. The first record, you know, number one, the first record we made here, yeah. and, and I had them here for like three or four days. And so it was kind of like I got some time playing with Gary and, yeah. and Matt. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, you know, we, uh, we played, we rehearsed, we did a show at Lewis and Clark in affiliation with Jazz Night, and we did a night at Jimmy Max, the last night yeah. at the old Jimmy Max oh, before geez. they moved across oh, the street. Oh, the old, old Jimmy yeah. Max. The yeah. last night there. Yeah. And then we went into the studio for a day, and a studio I knew. And so that was pretty nice. That was a lot of playing. This one, I flew out to New Jersey, you know, saw my son for in New York for a day, got up the next morning, went to Gary's house, you know, bought lunch, uh, I buy all the meals, bought lunch, uh, had rehearsed with Gary for two and a half hours, went to the studio, set up and rehearsed with Rudy for two and a half hours, and then made the record the next day and in, in nine hours. And the record sounds great because it sounds, first of all, those guys do it all the time. That's what they're always doing. They're seeing yeah. new music and yeah. recording it. You know, they're just, yeah. they can bring it. And my music is not a challenge for them. Uh, my music's not a. My music is 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 interesting and complex, but it's not super hard, and so they could just knock it out. But the record has this freshness that you know of just like discovery. We did each tune two or three times, and you know they're so good, they sound great on it. And uh, um, what do you mean it's it's not it's 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 not hard? Well, they you mean play, it's like not verres or something. Well, <laughs> they they play. You know, Gary plays with. And, 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 and Rudy, you know, it's a different world out there in New York. I mean, as much as we like to go, yes, in Portland, we're just like they are in New York. No, I mean, we're nobody not. says that. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> but we like to think, you know, what's it's just as good here or there are people who are as good. And there are people who are, you know, and have in the past and could to this day play in New York. Sure. But I mean, A-list New York guys like Gary and Rudy, mm-hmm. um, you know, Gary spends, you know, every other week there's a new project with some, you know, saxophonist from the Maria Schneider band, you know, Tim Perry or Donnie uh-huh. McCaslin uh-huh. or some guy or, you know, who's written really hard music and they're going to, and they just, they just, they have a constant diet of this uh-huh. and they have a constant diet of like having to get it together. So, uh, you know, my music, you know, is my music's more about the interpretation. You know, my music still has a lot of, you know, you know, there's some, you know, there's some tricky things, but more it's about may bringing the music to life and understanding what it means. And, and, um, they were able to do that. No, no problem. I mean, the, you know, Rudy Royston, you know, Gary's talking about how Gary plays in Rudy's band and, mm-hmm. you know, how hard Rudy's music was and Rudy plays in Gary's band, you know, and they all play on other people's records. Right. It's just another world. They're doing that all the time. Now I'm mm-hmm. going to be doing, we did a record last year with Chris Lee. That's a great, great record mm-hmm. with Greg Goble and Thomas Barber and Dave Captain. you know, and that was, a, you know, we we're working on this very hard music, very well thought out, beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And we recorded that in Billy Oskay's studio. Oh, or nice. Whoever that is. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we're going to do another record and that's great. You know, that's, but you know, that's like once a year here, those guys are doing oh, yeah. that every, every week, day, yeah. you know, and they're yeah. great anyhow. On yeah. top of that, they were great to begin with. So they, you know, just nailed my record and it's, it's, it's beautiful record. I was, you know, 
when I did the last record, asking the difference. So when I did the last record here, you know, in a studio I was comfortable with, with my engineer, Bob Stark. You know, this record, I showed up at a studio in New Jersey. I'd never been that Gary chose. Wow. But then you get to the studio in New Jersey and Gary's like, it's nothing big. It's not one of the fancy studios, yeah. Yeah. but you know, it's a good project studio. It's a good little record, you mm-hmm. know, and then you realize, oh yeah. And the, uh, the engineer has got two Grammys sitting there, you know, from, from, you know, and it's like, oh, and here's the records that have been made here, you know, yeah. oh, here's this one with Brian Blade and here's this one, yeah. you know, and yeah. so you realize even their little off the, you know, in neighborhood studio yeah. has Grammy winning big name musician um, records. And so, and I didn't have my amplifier and I only had one guitar and I didn't have wow, my really? Yeah. So, I mean, I had to really just go do it. And, you know, a lot of times I think good comes out of not having all your stuff. You know, it's sort of like if you just have to make do, then uh-huh. you'll do good. You know, uh-huh. and then as opposed to like, oh, I could have done that or should I do this or maybe I should switch this or I should try that or let's try this over here. You know, it's just like, well, this, this is the amplifier they have. And I brought this one guitar on the airplane and I brought my small effects board. And uh, that's what we're doing. And, wow. Uh, so, OK, so we, so we, we talked we talked about career arc and we've talked about. <laughs> Uh, the, the you know the, uh, the other career stuff and some technical stuff, but the thing we haven't talked about about this record, which by the way is 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 called When the Night, which when I don't know night. what that means, but I'll get to that. Yeah, that we haven't talked about is the emotions on this record. Yes, and it's 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 full of them of emotions. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I mean, so that's what my music is trying to do. Yeah. You know, it's trying to get... It works. It's trying to get to your heart, and which instrumental music doesn't often do, in my opinion. Uh-huh. And, and that's, you know, there's all these really smart people writing really amazing smart music and mm-hmm. I'm, it's, I'm not that interested in it and there are all these people who could just play their asses off mm-hmm. and I'm not that interested in that because yeah. it used to be the only people who could play their asses off were you know Joe Henderson and you know right. Hank Mobley and whoever was alive yeah. you know the 10 great saxophone players now there's hundreds hundreds of everything in jazz it's become yeah. overpopulated and so you know you have to find your you know, I've always tried to make my niche, you know, by trying to, you know, make the music, you know, emotive to people mm-hmm. and uh, tell my story and not just how clever are we or how versatile we are or how technical we are or how right. virtuosic. So, yeah, it's a, and that's what I've been trying to do. And, uh, and I think, you know, I think, you know, these songs came together you know pretty emotionally and just you know very colorful and kind of my voice and um uh yeah i invite anybody to come out and keep an eye on my website danbomber.com will say where i'm playing come out here for instance for instance what i what i'd like to know is take a song like it felt like drowning parentheses my last divorce song (laughs) and parentheses now did you start out to write a song about that particular feeling or is did that or did did you did you put a name to what what, what you had already written well i um that's so on my previous record it's called not a the uh-huh. uh there's a song called where has she gone where did she go and yeah. and i and i then that is a sad 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 ballad that ends with this very complicated shifting time signature section where the drums solo in this sort of disoriented mm-hmm. and it's sort of my expression of trying to figure out what happened 
you know, why, why, <laughs> what happened to my marriage? Why, right. why did my wife completely lose interest in me and become so disenchanted? And so that song was, you know, I wrote that in the basement in the house when we're still living in the house and oh, I'm so sad and, wow. um, and it was just mystified, you know, and it's a song yeah, of kind of mystery. Yeah. And I did actually, Dave, I gave a talk about that song at the Port Townsend Jazz Workshop with John Clayton and Terrell Stafford and mm-hmm. Jeff Hamilton. I gave a long talk about how I wrote that song and why and how it has these hopeful moments and kind of, you know, thoughtful moments and then ends sad and confused. And so... I had thought about, I had the title actually first, it felt like drowning, was how I felt in my divorce. I sort of felt like this long, slow death. And uh, I was writing that song, and you know, I was always trying to write songs because I think songwriting is what makes you different. You know, a lot of people play the guitar well. Not that many, you know, and and, uh, not that many people write songs people wanna hear. And there's more more good players than composers by far. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more good singers than there are good songwriters. You know, there's uh-huh. more, you know. And when we think about the people we admire, I always tell my students you should be writing because all the people we love are great composers. You know, mm-hmm. Coltrane, sure. you know, Miles Davis, mm-hmm. you know, West Montgomery wrote great You know, mm-hmm. Pat Metheny, John Schofield. Those guys, right. Metheny, Schofield, Frizzell, these guys are very good guitar players, great mm-hmm. guitar players. But they're really great composers. I mean, there are mm-hmm. more people who could play guitar like Pat Metheny than there are people who could write like Pat Metheny. Only yeah. Pat Metheny could write like Pat Metheny. People could play, you know, well. And so to me, composing was always a big part of it. So that song, I was always trying to write songs, and I was working on that song. And it's kind of the chord progression is borrowed a little bit from a Brazilian, obscure Brazilian song called To Say Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And uh, that song is... is um, you know, it's just dark, dark, dark. There's moments of redemption in it. Right. There's moments where it goes a little bit major, like it's hopeful, like it might work out, but no. And so whenever I play live, I always tell people what the songs are about. And that's how I can play for like my my late uncle's Methodist church in <laughs> on Beaverton and play for a bunch of 68-year-old people yeah. and have them hear the music. Because I say, yeah. this is yeah. what this song is about. You know, this is the, what the meditation behind this song is. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I always tell people so, but on this record, I just thought I'm going to start telling people what the songs are about in the record with the parentheses. <laughs> so people, you know, and so as Chicago Public Radio, a guy played it the other day on mm-hmm. their jazz station, yeah, and he he said uh, he played a I don't know if you know this song, but he played a John Clayton uh-huh. song called Walking Bass, uh-huh. where John talks. And John uh, talks about going drinking with his bass. Wow. And he goes, and I went out drinking with my bass. And they got <laughs> Terrell Stafford on trumpet and, you know, and boom, doom, doom. And my bass, you know, we pulled up to the bar and my bass could drink a lot more than me. Anyway, <laughs> he gets drunk with his bass, and, but he loves his bass. And his, they get really drunk and they go home and his wife's really mad. And then his <laughs> wife says, you know, I want you out of this house. And well, John's not worried because he can just go hang out with his bass. <laughs> and, she, and, and then, so the guy followed that because that song sort of ends with his wife leaving him and then followed it with my song. Oh, geez. Yeah. So, I mean, people are seeing, yeah. you know, yeah. what the songs are yeah. about. Yeah. And uh, That sounded like a slam, stu- slam well, steward exactly. kind of thing. I know, it's, yeah. the tune is sort of like this, sort of yeah. old-fashioned, yeah. it's kind of old school. But so, yeah, so the titles are important. Uh, and I want people to know, you know, what, 
you know, like the first song is called Wes, and it's dedicated to Wes Montgomery. It says, Wes, yeah. for my favorite. Doesn't sound anything like Wes no. or anything he'd ever do, but it's inspired by a little line, a little oboe line in, I think, his version of Here's That Rainy Day, the little uh-huh. motif in my song. It's a very obscure reference, but... You know, I dedicated a song to Toninho Horta, the great Brazilian guitarist, a, mm-hmm. a few years back. And on this record, there's a song called Life Size Bright that's dedicated to Pat Metheny and his record, yeah, Bright, Bright Size, Size Life. Life. Right. And that says, for the man from, from Missouri. So there's no question, you know, that I'm just paying homage yeah. to those people. Well, what does when the night mean? Cause it, because it seems like there should be another word. To- right. Well, that, that, so that melody. When the night. What? Right. Well, then when the melody from that song, I mean, the truth of the matter is that song goes, yeah, yeah, da, da. I mean, it starts with the first three notes from Stand By Me. Ah. And the first three words in Stand By Me are when the night oh. is come. <laughs> so it's, it's very, it's very, you know, so the song and the song worked out really beautiful. But I mean, there are certain motifs in my music. I mean, I've been writing music since I was 14. Certain things keep coming up. So I have another song that starts a little bit like that. But I was like, you know, sitting there trying to write something because I'm always trying to write something. Yeah. Yeah, da, da. And then I sort of abandoned there. But then I thought, you know, those, that's such an enigmatic thought. Uh-huh. You know, like the last record was called Not A The. And this one's called When The Night. Yeah, the When The Night, it can be whatever you want. But if you listen <laughs> and you have that in your mind and you hear the first three notes of that song, uh-huh. you kind of go, oh, this sounds a little bit like Stand By Me, although I leave it after that i but, didn't get that well i mean it's it's you know you have to be but in the I, right I'll, mood. well i'm gonna listen to it again yeah well thank you i hope and so. i'm sure I, you know I'm yeah sure you'll I'll, hear I'll it like, you'll oh. hear it i mean you wouldn't you know you wouldn't expect it I mean, no, expect, no no nobody would expect it but it's a beautiful no. beautiful either, song and it's nobody beautiful motif. either stand by me or the spanish revolution yes uh, inquisition <laughs> well yeah <laughs> Stand by me was better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where that comes from. And then, you know, it kind of makes an interesting question. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting line anyhow, when the night, it's just sort yeah. of, you know, it's sort yeah. of, it's so, so, you know. Now, I, wait a minute. Who wrote that? Stand by me. Was that Benny King? King? King wrote it? He Benny wrote it. King? No, he did it, but. Uh, you think but somebody he, else wrote it? Oh, it was like probably Goffin King or somebody like no, that. I don't you know? think so. Oh, no, this is our new world. I bet you. Okay, well, I, I wouldn't. Well, I won't argue. <laughs> See, stand by me. I don't know. I think that was like his his one. I mean, Goffin and King's songs were more complicated than that. Stand by me. There's the adventure comedy. That was not a comedy. Rob Reiner, Stand by Me song. Who sang the most popular version of Stand by Me? It was Benny, Benny King. King. Right. We agree on that. Now he got the. He got, Who originally he... wrote Stand by Me? Yes. So it says here. Uh, ben E. King, Jerry Lieber, and Mike Stoller. Ah. So, ah. I mean, who knows who got the money? Lieber and Stoller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I just want to, I forget go. which one was from Baltimore. One of those guys were from Baltimore. Really? From, yeah. And that's where you're from. That's where I'm from. Like George Colligan. Well, he's sort of from Baltimore. Is he not? Is you know, he, he and I lived in the same building like a decade apart. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's funny. Yeah, he's a good addition to good addition to our song. It was written by him, Benny King, and written by him along with Lieber and Stoller. Right. Who together used the al- pseudonym Elmo Glick. That I didn't know. The title of the song is derived from the spiritual Sam Cooke, J.W.I., Stand By Me, Father. Huh? Recorded, recorded by the Soul Stirrers. Elmo Glick. Yeah. 
That's good. That's funny. Well, there was, you know, yeah, George Duke used to be Dawili Gonga. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, people have done that to, uh, you know. Yeah. Alan Toussaint was Na- Naomi Neville. Really? Which I believe was the name of his aunt or his grandmother. Wow. Well, he was, you know, he had multiple contracts with multiple labels and, and just get out gave of, out with yeah, different, right. Interesting. Just gave a different name. Yeah. And I wish, yeah. I wish my, wish my career would get to that point where I needed to do that. <laughs> So, yeah, so I'm excited about the new record. It's getting played around the country on the radio. It's yeah. very hard to do anything with it. You know, I mean, it's, right. you, you know, it's, it's, you know. It seems to me, though, and I, I, may, I think I'm going to mention this to Matt Flieger, is that this, this album, for what KMHD is doing right now, yeah. it's, it just, it's just seems like such a, a good fit. Well, I mean, you know, I think, you know, and I don't know, you know, Matt is, I don't know what, you know. <laughs> I don't know how things work over there. You know, I know, you know, the, all, the jockeys have it and, and hopefully they're playing it. And, uh, you know, yes, anything you might say to Matt would be appreciated. You know, I wrote to him and, you know, yeah. he's, he's, uh, he's, he's the man behind the iron curtain or, yeah. you know, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's had my back a long time. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. If you put in a word, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because I really like him and liked him from the beginning. Uh, but it's harder to, you know, and I know he's busy and got a lot going on, but yeah, I hope, I would hope it would be, you know, I think it is, it's, it's yeah. very alive. It's, you know, it's crosses a lot of, it crosses a lot of, you know, genres, you yeah. know, a lot of styles. Well, that's what that station's all about. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. I, I, mean, I haven't heard when, it on there, but I hope when, to. <laughs> when he first got to town, I, I, I sat down and talked with him and we, and we both agreed with the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Great music, ancient to the future. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, it took him a long time to turn because it was like it was like piloting a, an ocean liner. It's yeah. a long time to make a right turn or a left yeah, turn, right? right? Turn right. it around. But uh, numbers are great. Yeah, no, I know it's, it's super. It, it's, you know, and that's what you realize when you put out a record. You realize, yeah. oh yeah, well, you know, well, the San Antonio station only does eight hours a week or right. whatever. You know, you realize, right. Right. you know, having a dedicated jazz station is a great thing. So that's why I'm, yeah, I would love it if you'd yeah. put in a word for it or you know, give it your endorsement or, yeah. you know, Dan, Dan, I'm already putting it on a on a podcast. Well, I know <laughs> I appreciate this a lot. We are hanging out at this nice artichoke <laughs> music. This is a great space. It is a good space. I, I did a photo shoot here about a month ago. Normeter? Nor- yeah, and yeah. it was great. It's The photos yeah, yeah. are great. Yeah, good. I put them up all over, yeah. Nice. Really happy nice. with it. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so you started writing at 13? Yeah. What did you write when you were 13? I wrote a song that I could still recite the lyrics to, which was I was in England with my father. was a college teacher, and he had taken a group of students overseas, and I missed my girlfriend, and I wrote <laughs> a song... Uh, that went C sharp minor, B minor, A major. <laughs> when, when I'm at home, I lie alone and my time seems endless. I look out the window and it makes me feel more blue. People walking by talking and I'm feeling kind of friendless. So I spend my idle moments thinking of you was the first verse. Wow. Did she ever hear it? Yeah. Yeah. Did it work? Well, I, <laughs> hard to say. You know how it is. You know how it is at that age. But I loved writing vocal tunes. I mean, I wrote uh-huh. vocal tunes for Tom Grant. He recorded three yeah. of my vocal tunes. And yeah. I, you know, I loved writing lyrics. I, I almost think, I often thought that's what I was best at, you know, was just writing songs, writing songs. And I would like to have done that. I mean, that's the uh-huh. one thing I didn't do in my career. You're not dead, you know. Well, yeah. But I mean, talk about a hard business. Yeah. You know, and that, and especially now, I mean, look where we are now. I mean, 
you know the sound of music these yeah. days you know what kids listen to and um you know what music you know but I, yeah i would like to have done that but then you realize when you do that first of all what i'm good at is playing the guitar and so then that's what you know that's yeah. what you know so that's what people want me to do you know right. good come play the guitar and uh you know that's what my competitive advantage is it's like growing you know growing uh, bananas in costa rica you know that's what they should be doing <laughs> they shouldn't be you know growing something wheat you know and i but should be playing the, the guitar many many terrific singers in town mostly women uh, but uh, have them sing my songs. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that and that. And so, but I realized I was down in L.A. with Tom Grant at one point, and we were at a party, and there was a guy who was a songwriter. And, you know, I met him. He was like, and, you know, in L.A., you know, this is a famous joke. You know, you, people are shaking your hand while they're looking towards the next person. You right. know, hi, how you doing? Yeah. You know, they're not looking at me when they say that. And, you know, you realize this songwriter was at this party. You know, like he met me and then he realized I couldn't be of any help. So he moved on to the next person. Right. You realize that'd right. be a hell of a, you know, jazz is enough of a meritocracy, you know, that if you're good, you know, you will work. You know, and, and then things like songwriting are much more, I feel like there is more of a, a uh, you know sort of a, a you know a whimsical nature or a popularity contest yeah, or a, yeah. a ch changing with the wind you know but jazz you play really well people will the musicians will know you can play really well and they will support that and you will get some work but you know you can write a great song and how do you get it to somebody who can sing it you know and that becomes your full time job of trying to shop your songs and uh, well I don't know you know in, in, in this town there's five or six Ten great female singers. I mean, just great. Well, and I did a record with McKinley, who was a very good singer uh -huh. back in the day. We had yeah. a really nice record that's on Spotify. There you go. Um, but yeah, you know, that's just a whole night. You know, it's hard enough. You know, it doing sounds what I'm like doing. it's an itch that needs to be scratched. Well, I, well, thank you. Yeah, I should. I mean, I and Bob Stark <laughs> used to say, "You should come. You know, you you should come sing. You know, you don't. You know, you have an interesting voice." He'd say, "You know, you don't necessarily sing in tune, but but you have a good. You know, you have an interest. You know, but that. You know, but you have to hone that craft too. And I." Yeah. I talked to Craig Carruthers about that. So, uh -huh. if you remember Craig, did sure, you know him at all? Sure. I mean, he was kind of Portland's, you know, crafty songwriter. Yeah. You know, and then and it's like anything. And you then you listen to Elliot Smith songs or T Tim Buckley or whoever or these, you know, and you're kind of like, geez, you know, these guys, they really know what they're doing, you know. So, I don't know. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm not taking this lightly. I might get home and. Get that acoustic guitar. I've wrote, you know, I've written a few more really good songs over the years that mm -hmm. I, you know, felt like doing something with, and I've talked to people about them. But, you know, there again, you know, I, you know, it may just be my own <laughs> overestimating myself, like I might feel about my basketball playing skills. Or, you know, so I may be, I may be wrong about this, but I love doing that. So I wrote my first song then, and then yeah. I was, you know in a band with Tom Wakeling and Jeff Cumston and uh, when really? I was 19, yes. Wow. And, and we had a band that practiced to call ESP. We practiced all the time and rehearsed with Dave Leslie or Steve Was it a fusion, a fusion band? Well, it was kind of jazz fusion, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, but I wrote, started writing for that because you know, I thought, well, I'm not going to learn these I'm not going to go learn a Pat Metheny song. I should just write a song that sounds like a Pat Metheny song. And, <laughs> you know, I could do that better than I could, mm -hmm. you know, learn his songs. And, and, and so that got me going. And then writing songs for Tom Grant, you know, back then when you had, and Tom was very generous with, with, 
publishing and royalties and all that. And I, I always kept all my publishing and royalties. And mm-hmm. those records sold a lot. And I got a lot of airplay. And I had songs in TV shows and in yeah. movies. Yeah. And, you know, really made money when I was young. You know, thousands of dollars, yeah. you know, a year from songs. And, and uh, so that was, you know, that, that, that kept, you know, that, 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 you know kept you know and make your own records and do Uh your own concerts and so i've always written and so the new record the songs on the new record came together really well i mean i was really Uh lucky and when we play them live they sound good sometimes you write a good song but it never sounds good live or you write a song and you know it just doesn't get to but the songs on the record sort of you know came to fruition which is great you know this is on portland jazz composers ensembles label yes um, did you work with Ryan Marr on any of this stuff? Well, he he did a lot, a lot, a lot. What of, was his role? Well, he he you know his talk, role. He talk, ordered the T-shirts. Yeah, uh, he ordered the he or he got the record. You know, put. I mean, mm-hmm. they have a budget for them to help you. I mean, in other words, mm-hmm. so he did. You know, he he you know you know oversaw the manufacture of the CD. You know, he didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't. Uh, was the fact that he's a guitar music. player factor in? Well, no, but I, you know, I think we have a certain, you know, close, you know, yeah. certain understanding because yeah. yeah. that, and they have, you know, so, but the neat thing was that, you know, we did this concert where we did, where they, I was the featured composer and we uh-huh. did six of my pieces yeah. with arrangements. Wow. And, and, you know, and so instead of it being, you know, my 12th, you know, CD release party, like mm-hmm. who gives a damn, you know, and my last CD release party I did at the Lake Theater in Lake Oswego, and you know holds about seventy-eight or eighty-five people. And yeah. by twisting friends' arms, you know we filled it. But this we did at Lewis and Clark, who mm-hmm. they were honoring me for all my years as an adjunct faculty, and gave me use of the Evans Auditorium, which is a great music room mm-hmm. where many of the you know where I saw the Keith Jarrett Quartet, wow. you know back in the day, as well as you know Schofield was just there, yeah. Julian Lodge was just there. Did, did, did he have a special microphone so he could so he could squeak? Uh, Keith, <laughs> you could hear him. Yeah, you could hear him. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, we did it at Lewis and Clark, yeah. and that was nice for the college. And then we had these arrangements. And so because of these six, so I wrote two new pieces, and we did two pieces from the record, and then two arrangers chose old pieces of mine. And so that made it really a special night. And uh, so we had more like 260 people you know, which is hard to do, yeah. you know, to get people. It's been Brad Meldow was playing that night, and there was wow. all kinds of people that were like, oh, man, yeah, I'd yeah. be there, but I already got tickets yeah. to Brad Meldow. So you're always yeah. competing with something. So we had this great CD release concert, and Ryan was, you know, super involved in that, and he helped with the, you know, he did one of the arrangements, and he conducted the band and mm-hmm. hired the That's orchestra. Nice. And, and the nice. arrangements were incredible. I mean, it's and they're going to be on YouTube, and so it's worth Great. listening. And and Bryn Roberts, who's a transplant, yeah. recent Portland native, or not native, recent Portland transplant, he did an amazing arrangement to my song, uh, Life Size Bride. And Clay Guyberson, mm-hmm. I wrote a song for Carlton Jackson, uh, our old drummer. Yeah. And Clay wrote it just a, an arrangement of that that's just heartbreaking. The song is heartbreaking. Yeah. And uh, it's called Hymn for Carlton. And that was written for this concert, which I've never done. I've never had to write music for anything. And, yeah. so, yeah. and so so we had these great arrangements. Those, those two sort of stood out. Um, and... You know, that made it really something worth coming to see, you know, once in a lifetime, 
rather than like, oh, here's your band playing yeah, a gig. Well, yeah. I can see that That's first great. Sunday of any month. That, that is Joe awesome. Bar. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, and there aren't many places to play, so, you know, you have to kind of manufacture that event. Yeah, and we all still do Miss Carlton. Oh, man. Yeah, and just, you know, that whole thing kind of sucked, you know. Yeah. I mean, his life should have been better. Right. I mean, you know. Because he made, he made life better for everybody else. Well, he was a great player, and, uh, you know, yeah. I've said before, you know, I feel like, you know, I feel like he, you know, I think he had some issues that 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 should have been treated, you know. I yeah. think, I think you know, and I think those issues made it harder for him to have, you know, he didn't right. have as much work as he should have, and, he, yeah. you know, and therefore he didn't have as much money and self-esteem and, you know, interaction, and because, yeah. you know, I think, you know, I think he was, you know, very moody at times, and, and I think other people who are sort of that way, I think, you know, I think Carlton should have been, I've said this before, so I'll say it again. I mean, I think he probably should have had, you know, should have had counseling like we should all have, yes. you know, and he maybe should have had medication like a lot of people do have, you know, right. he should have had right. something to even himself out a little bit. Yeah. But I just don't know that anybody in his community or his, you know, orbit, right you know, did that. And so because they didn't, he was working less and less. And, and yeah. that was a, a, a great loss because we recorded my song. We did one of the arrangements was my song, Tonino and Bill Athens did a great arrangement of that. And you go back mm -hmm. and listen to the original record. Nobody in the world played like Carlton. Right. You know, he was really a unique drummer and beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. He was like the most yeah. beautiful drummer. Yes. I ever played with. Really? And yeah, well, he was beautiful. He just wow. had this beautiful, warm, yes. you know, and I just, you know, and he was in everybody's band at one point and then sort of sometime by, you know, kind of not always being on best, best or, you know, best behavior sort of ended up not in people's bands and musically he was the right guy. Yes. And uh, so yeah. I just feel like he, it was a real loss for him and us, you know, yeah. that, that, that nobody, you know, Nobody around him did more to try and help him, you know, mediate his challenges yeah. or even recognize them. So I, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, it's heartbreaking. Well, I mean, I feel honored that they repeat my, my, my radio show on KMHD after Carlton's every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he knew a lot about music and he loved oh, yeah. music and yeah. was non-judgmental about music, yeah. you know. All right, well, listen, uh, I wanted to get to one other thing, and that was I had Galen Clark in here a couple of weeks ago oh. to talk about the New Year's Eve show Yeah, uh, with Outer Orbit right. and uh, a Greater Kind. And, oh, uh, that's a good double bill. So I, oh, it's a great double bill. Yeah. <laughs> They'll all end up playing together, too. I mean, this is we're recording this before the, the, yeah. before the first. Um, so tell me about... Your involvement with Trio Subtonic and what is what is that? How does that work and what's that do for you? Uh, you know that well. It was Galen. You know, Galen was a Lewis and Clark student, and I I never mm -hmm. had him. He was never in the combos. He he yeah. graduated before I started running the combos there. But you know, I've taught at Lewis and Clark for many many years. You know, ever since I went there, and Galen was a graduate. And you know, I think they have that great trio and cool sound and great repertoire. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, and they are, you know, especially at times, you know, influenced by Medeski, Martin and Wood. I mean, sure. Medeski's his favorite. And then, you know, Medeski, Martin and Wood started using Schofield, you know, sort of like you use an old cranky guy, you know, to, <laughs> to, 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 to kind of help take your music some other places. So yeah. Galen asked me to play and, uh, I, I did. And, 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 you know, 
and I, it was really fun. I mean, it's always fun to be a sideman, as the David Frischberg song uh-huh. goes, I want to be a sideman. <laughs> it's always fun to be a sideman. But, uh, and then, you know, we've, and over the years, you know, they used me and used me and used me in special occasions, then sort of started using me almost all the time uh-huh. if there was a budget for it. And it's sort of, I mean, Chris Brown, you know, the drummer, yeah. said to me, he goes, I thought Trio Subtonic was your band. Because there's always this Trio Subtonic featuring Dan Barber. He said, I always thought you were the leader on that band. I go, no, I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the last guy I hired. But I mean, you know, I mean, you know, we've become very, very good friends. Yeah. You know, I use Bill Athens, the bass player. For me, what it does for me, I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, I've loved it. Um, uh, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of times... You know, if Micah Hummel's playing drums, you know, he could be, mm-hmm. you know, he could be, you know, my, I mean, my kid, you know, I mean, he could, yeah. you know, I mean, any of them could be my kid in some way. Um, so it's great playing with young people. You know, I've learned a lot, you know, you learn a lot, you know, and it's great to be around them and their crowd. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, we've become good friends, you know, travel, you know, drive up to Seattle together. Sure. Um, uh you know, and to and you know to be in with that. You know, I mean, I just feel like, and that's what you said. We talked about at the beginning. I feel like, you know, I'm the age I am. You know, I'm in my 60s, and you know, to still get to play with young people, you know, and and you know, have them want to play with me is like yeah. that's very gratifying. And oh, sure, you know, and and to feel like I can add to that, and and you know, that's brought me into a whole different community and whole different audience and a whole different. Uh, you know, kind of music, and I've mm-hmm. learned from them musically, and uh, so it's been great for me. And 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 we've done a lot of fun gigs together, mm-hmm. and and you know, do, sort of do been you, through do, a lot. They, they play any of your tunes? No, <laughs> you interesting. Know, yeah, well, I mean, it's and you know, I and and you know, I've, I've there's been times I felt like, well, they should do this, and, you know. And Bill Athens, the bass player, writes some really great tunes and they do Mm -hmm. some of bill's tunes and you know but it's really the band is like galen's conception you know yeah and we kind of go where galen goes and a lot of times i'd be like well that's not how i do it or that's not i Uh should hear you know should you know but i just keep my mouth shut because it's really cool it's you know i learn from that it's like i'm not you know i'm not always right as much as i think i am and (laughs) you know i mean he's you know he's a cool guy with a cool conception and we get into this shit and i'm like man people like this better than my music why do people like this better than my music but it's like we get into some really great stuff so it's been really fun and i hope it keeps going i mean you know, it's the 1905, that, that closing really yes. hurts that band. Of course. Because um, it's not, you know, it's not, you know, they had a steady one night a month, and most of the time I would do it. Yeah. Um, and we had great crowds. And, and uh, so, I lo- you know, I've loved, that's been a great, you know, and then I've been touring with Pink Martini as a sub. Uh-huh. You know, so on one hand, you know, even at this point in my career, you know, going and doing a European tour for uh, three weeks, you know, or going—that's pretty good. Going and playing for the, going to play for Prince Prince Rainier in yeah. in, uh, in, uh, in or Prince Albert, whichever one it was, in Monaco for his party. Did they have Prince Albert in a can? Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. Wait, he's going into the bathroom. Beat you to it. <laughs> yeah. Beat you to it. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, so you know, on one hand, I've been doing some of the most, you know, 
high profile yeah. gigs I've done in my life. Yeah. And then on the other hand, doing some like, you know, go play the funky kids club, you know, uh-huh. play at the good foot or whatever yeah. with them. And, you know, yeah. and I feel like, boy, that's all lucky, uh, you know, and, and a lot, you know, and then still like last night we played with Mel Brown and it was sold out at the Jack London. You couldn't uh-huh. get in, uh-huh. you know, and, you know, doing that. And I'm going to be playing at a new place called the garages, which is having some yeah. music. Yeah. So, um, You've been playing with Mel for a long time. Well, 25 years, yeah. Jeez. 20 years. I mean, it's been great. I mean, we're, you know, like I say, we've still Portland's most popular jazz band. Yeah. I mean, you know, we yeah. filled the club at, you know, 20 and 30 bucks a ticket and, you know, had two guest singers and 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 everybody Who made was singing? Out. Well, we had Andy Stokes last week. Oh boy. That was insane. Andy's this week we great. had Sean Holmes and uh-huh. and Arietta Ward. Oh boy. You know, so I mean, that's, you know, and and we had Chris Brown week before. Uh-huh. So that band's still at the Jack London once or twice a month. You know, I've been playing with Rebecca Kilgore. Yeah. Uh, is, 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 is Mel doing, is that a septet? It's the chord, is the organ it's a, group. Oh, the, oh, so the organ, organ, organ sax, gotcha. Yeah, so another, yeah, you know, yeah, Mike, yeah, another Lewis organ and, gig and Lewis, Lewis and Renato. Uh-huh. So that's been, you know, that's, that, that's been great. That's been a great, you know, and a lot of times, like, over the course of my career, if people want to hire me, you know, but maybe they don't want my band. I'm like, well, I could bring the Mel Brown group. Oh, yeah. great. You know, so that's like a festival, you know, or a concert. Sure. You know, sure. people love that band. And it's great. It's a great band. People should love it. So, I mean, to get to do that, do my music. I've been doing, you know, these duos on Sundays at the Willamette Valley Vineyards Tasting Room in Lake Oswego with a great bass player named Andrew Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, so all these, you know... You know, whether it's, you know, international fame of Pink Martini or the, yeah. you know, young people dance groove thing with uh-huh. with with Trio Symphonic or, you know, the Portland, you know, OG Portland, you know, jazz, you know, with Mel. Yeah. You know, I just did these shows with Patrick Lamb and Ron Steen, you know, the mm-hmm. Peanuts, Charlie Brown Peanuts shows. We did a bunch of concerts of that. So I feel really lucky, you know, and then still teaching a lot and. Yeah, I've very, you know, I got nothing to complain about. I hate you. Yes. <laughs> That's what I was hoping to hear. Thank you. No, I mean, it's, you know, I feel, I feel, you know, I feel, you know, you got to appreciate. You oh, know, you better have. You know, you, know, and you, you better know, appreciate. You know, when I got the gig with Diane Schur in 2006 and toured mm-hmm. with her for four years, I yeah. felt like, wow, this is great. Here I am in my, you know, 40s, late 40s, early 50s, and now I'm playing Japan for the first time. Or, yeah. Well, and, you know, going to Russia and Brazil and Argentina. And I thought, wow, that's great. You know, what a great end of career reprise. Oh. <laughs> but then going back with Pink Martini and playing yeah. Tel Aviv. And, yeah. You know, I don't suppose I'll be playing Tel Aviv anytime soon. But, uh, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, playing, you know, Monaco, which I'd never played, playing, yeah. you know, Budapest, which I hadn't played. And then places I had played, like Istanbul and Madrid. Yeah. I just quoted Thomas Lauderdale to somebody today. From an interview that we did in 2000. The oh, first, my gosh. The first story I ever shot for Oregon Artbeat. Oh, my gosh. Uh, he, we were up in his loft. And of course, that was before he had, he had you know, re, totally redone it. It was just kind of grungy. And he said, there is victory in vacuuming. <laughs> there is victory in vacuuming. Yes. I'll have to go contemplate that one. It's it's true. I yes. believe it's true. It doesn't mean I'm going to go vacuum anything. But I, I think conceptually, 
Yeah. He's, he was absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, it's, a, it's actually, yeah, it is a pretty good. That's better than uh, when we were on stage in, in Stuttgart yeah. in, uh, playing in this beautiful, magnificent old uh, convent, which mm-hmm. had a big natural square. So it's like wow. many places in Europe where there's a you know, cobblestone pavement and then kind of around you, you're surrounded by this building that's yeah. a big square. And then there's a giant TV screen is, you know, over the stage. And Thomas said, I look like a big fat lesbian. <laughs> so there's a which I thought was hilarious. I don't know if the audience thought it was as funny as I did. That's funny. But uh, that's, well, that's, 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 that was, that's, there's victory in vacuuming. Uh, Trump's that. If I can use that word. That's funny. Well, listen, Dan, thanks for coming in. I know that you're just uh, coming out of the dentist. Yeah, well, it was not. It was just a cleaning that's good. Yeah. No, but no, it's great. Great to see you. And, you know, all these relationships that we've had over the years, right. you know, are, you know, very meaningful and, and more meaningful as the years go by. That That's for sure. That them. is for damn sure. You know, and, you know, just the connection of the Portland music community. Mm-hmm. It's like playing with Mel Brown last night. Mm-hmm. And Paul Knowles was there, who's the guy who owned Geneva's and owned uh-huh. the Cotton Club, 92-year-old wow. uh, African-American gentleman. And, you know, Mel was talking about playing there when Marvin Gaye came yeah. in. And, yeah. and I was yeah. talking about me playing there with Ron Steen and Sonny King and Count Dutch back in the day. And, wow. No, it's just huh. yeah, new people like you and who are part of the music scene and yeah. the radio scene and the press scene and you know it's it's all all needs to be honored and you know kept kept current. Well, we appreciate you. The record's terrific. Thank you. I think it's now, good. Now, what I'd like to do is end with one of the tracks. Oh, that'd be great. Which one? Well, we should play "Win the Night" so people okay. can hear it go. Yeah, da da. Okay. Yeah. We'll do that. But first. We, I ha- we have to end it the way we usually end these things, by with me saying, that's entertainment. <laughs> <laughs>